from 1 John 5, verse 13 to 21. It's on page 1228 in the Church Bibles. Concluding remarks. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, I think it was Bertrand Russell who once said, what men want is not knowledge, but certainty. We all look, I think, for certainty in every aspect of our lives. But also, as John F. Kennedy said, the only unchangeable certainty is that nothing is certain or unchangeable. Which is true, isn't it? We don't know, um, for example, when, if economic recovery will come. If you're a young person here this morning, you've probably been wondering, will I get a job with the current state of youth unemployment as it is? Will I get married? Will I have children? There are some things we can work hard at to make them certain, to make them turn out as we would like them to, but um, even as Christians, there are things that we can pray for that we can't be certain about. Take the building project, for example. You know, we've prayed about it for a long time. And even having had the approval of the, the parish council, even having, as we heard this morning, the positive recommendation of the planning officer, we can't be certain about the outcome of that meeting next Thursday. Now, one thing you would say that we can surely be certain about as a Christian is that we can look forward to eternal life with God. But even then, I'm sure most of us at some time have had some doubts about our faith. And that is why John has been writing this letter. The difference um, between John's Gospel and this letter of John is that in John's Gospel, he's writing to those who don't yet believe. Let's just turn back again. You probably know those um, words from John chapter 20. Page uh, 1090 in uh, your church Bibles. This is John writing the Gospel. And he writes there in chapter 20, verse 31, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
That is the purpose of the gospel, that people may believe and have life. But come to the letter, back to the letter of John, though, and have a look there in verse 13 that Claire read for us. And now John's saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So these are believers he's writing to. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. To give you assurance, to give you certainty that you have eternal life. Now, let's just remind ourselves what eternal life is. It's not just about living forever. John in his Gospel actually explains what eternal life is. He writes this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's knowing God. It's, it's an intimate relationship with God, as Grant was talking about earlier with the younger guys. It's a relationship that starts now as we put our trust in him, and that lasts forever through eternity. And if the way into that relationship is by believing, is by faith, then the question is, well, how do we know if our belief, if our faith is genuine? How do we know that we have eternal life? And that is really the main theme of this book that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. If we are Christians, how can we be assured of our faith? And there are three key tests that have come out during this uh, letter, as we looked at. And let's just flick back over those to remind ourselves. Look back at chapter 2, verse 3. The first of those tests is obedience to God's commands. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. If we want to please him in everything that we do. As we sang earlier in that, in that song, um, this is our worship in things that are, said, that are seen, in things that are hidden. I'll seek to delight your heart, O oh God. If that's what we want to do, then that's a sign of our, of our relationship with God. Secondly, love for each other. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. If we have compassion, if we have concern for each other, if we're looking to help them and to pray for them, it's a sign that our heart is right with God. Love for each other. And thirdly, belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Crucial to our faith is who we believe Jesus is. We can be morally good, we can be loving people, but um, if we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we can't have a relationship with him, can we? Well, these are what is referred to as the things um, that John is writing about to those who believe, um, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And in his last um, verses of this letter, he keeps repeating this word know about seven times, I think. He doesn't just want us to understand it, he wants us to know it to be convinced of it. Because knowledge is not just something that's up there that we know in our heads, it's something that we know in our hearts. But he doesn't just want us to be certain about our eternal future. He wants us to be certain and confident in the way we approach God. A few weeks ago we said that the greatest confidence that we can have is on that day of judgment, being able to stand before God and trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, that he will intercede for us. But the assurance of our relationship with God also gives us a confidence now in how we approach God while we're still on this earth, how we pray to him. 
And the first area we're told about in this passage in which we can have confidence is in knowing that God hears our prayers. Knowing that God hears our prayers. Have a look at verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now we know from elsewhere in the Bible that that God loves to hear our prayers. Matthew 7 says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's just waiting for us to to pray and ask him for, for blessings. He longs to answer our prayers. Last summer we went to um, Thor Park as a family. It's an amusement sort of a, a theme park. Still recovering. Um, as we were leaving, we, we noticed, it was a very hot day, we noticed a Coca-Cola van just off to one side. And um, a guy shouting over the PA, free cans of Coke, here, come and get them. And you can see everybody sort of looking over thinking... Oh, come on, watch the catch here. You don't give away free cans of cake for nothing. Um, and then people would sort of slowly sort of have a look. Uh, is, this, is this really true? And uh, then you see them coming away with cans of cake. So the more people would go over. And, you, and when you did go over there, you met people who were genuinely enjoying giving away free cans of Coke. All you had to do was go up and ask. And it's a bit like that with God. All you have to do is go up and ask. And he's wanting to give us good gifts. He wants to answer our prayers. Now the trouble is, let's all be honest, we will all have experienced um, times when we have prayed for something and God hasn't appeared to answer that prayer. What is going on in that situation? Is it God hearing, not hearing? Well, we do have to be careful about understanding all the Bible has to say about a certain subject from one Verse. We don't want to take things out of context or think that is all that the Bible has to say on the subject. Already, if we flick back to um, 1 John 3, we have received some teaching about prayer. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 21. There it said, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. But then it carries on, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So what that is saying is that if you are persisting in disobedience to God, you can't expect him to to answer your prayers. Here in verse, um, coming back to chapter 5, there's also a condition in in, in asking God for, for what we want. Have a look again there, what it says. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We can't just ask for anything we want and expect God to, to answer it because often it's not actually the best thing for us and God doesn't want to, to harm us. And sometimes we can see afterwards why we didn't get exactly what we asked for. Other times we may just have to wait until we meet him to, to ask him, you know, why did you not answer that prayer as I particularly asked it? And it is difficult, isn't it, sometimes to know exactly what is God's will. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we we sang the Lord's Prayer earlier on. The first words he used were, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
How do we know his will? Though? How can we pray for it? Because ultimately, to do his will is to glorify him. You know, when Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was about to die, he said, you know, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus said to the disciples beforehand that he was going to die, you know, Peter said to him, never, never, Lord, never. To which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of, of God, the will of God, but the things of men. And actually it was by Jesus' death, his resurrection, that God would be most glorified. That was the will of God, and that is what we'll be celebrating this morning again. Last Sunday evening, we uh, looked at the issue of testing. And again, that comes up in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? How, uh, how the people of Israel were tested in the wilderness. And we, we read that God ordained that testing for a reason. It was to, to make them more like God. It was to make them depend on God even more. That is glorifying God more than our physical comfort. Now, there are many prayers in, in the Bible which help us to understand what it means to pray according to the will of God. Um, and here in verses 16 to 17, we're given another situation in which we should be praying. And I guess we can only assume then that it must be according to the will of God. It's, a, it's an intercessory prayer. It's praying for somebody else. Um, it's not particularly easy to understand, and it's uh, uh, been the subject of commentators trying to um, pick it apart and then work out the, the true meaning of it. But it would be easy to skip over it, but uh, let's, let's give it a, a go the, this morning. And the difficult challenge in here is, what does it mean to say that there is sin that leads to death and there is sin that doesn't lead to death? Well, when we read it in the context of this letter, I think what John doesn't seem to be doing is making a distinction between serious sins and less important sins. After all, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. We're, we're assured of that in, in this letter. So the sin here described as a sin that leads to death appears to be the persistent sin of those who do not meet the tests we talked about earlier on. Those who don't obey God's commands, who don't love each other, who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. People have basically rejected God. Now, there are those, however, of course, who, who, who may be Christians, but who have just backslidden, who, um, who are struggling spiritually. And what John is saying, I think, here is, pray for them, intercede for them. They need your prayers. You know, your Father in heaven doesn't want to see them fall away, doesn't want to see them lose their faith. And I think it is a, um, a lesson for us today to pray for the spiritual health of each other. You know, we're good at praying for physical health, we're good at um, praying for problems that we may be experiencing in our lives, and there's, there's, there's a place for that, but there's nothing wrong with that. But if we're talking about the will of God, the most important thing for him is the state of our relationship with God. And that means we need to be honest about it and not just come along to church and pretend everything's fine when, when underneath it's not. Ask for prayer. There's a prayer team that meets in the corner after every service. Go and ask for prayer. Come and see Jeff and me. You know, but speak to anybody in the church. You know, we, it shouldn't just be a certain small group that pray for each other. It should be all of us praying for one another. One person's prayers don't have more weight than, than another's. Well, we can have confidence that God hears us. We can also have confidence 
in knowing that God will protect us. I don't know if any of you have been to Go Ape before. Yeah, for those who don't know Go Ape, it's a, a high ropes course. Um, you walk across, uh, there you go, rope ladders and things uh, strung between trees. I think um, probably about up, you know, up to 50 feet high above the ground. It looks pretty, pretty scary up there. But, uh, ben and I did it a couple of years ago. And uh, certainly to start with, it is a pretty scary experience. But um, if you look at that second picture there on the right there, what you'll see there is that there are clips there, there are belts, and you are secure as you're walking along. And um, after a while, you realize that you are secure and you forget about the danger. And, uh, you know, you, you just walk along these things as though they're just sort of a foot off the ground until you get to the Tarzan swing, but uh, that's, uh, that's another story for those, I'm sure those who've done it will know. And it's a bit like that as a Christian, though. You know, we're living in a world, it says here in this passage, that is under the control or the power of the evil one. You know, that's Satan, the devil. And we know that Jesus has defeated him. Jesus came back from death, so he defeats them. The ultimate victory is Jesus's. But he hasn't come to claim that victory yet. And in the meantime, the devil has been allowed power and influence. And it's therefore as though we are walking along these high ropes with the danger of falling off at any possibility. The difference with the Christian is that there is somebody there holding him secure so he can't be dislodged. That verse 18 there is a huge reassurance. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God, and here I think it's talking about Jesus, the one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. Now that doesn't mean to say there won't be times when our feet slip. But there's a rope there to catch us. And it may be that we we dangle there for quite a while uh, or we're able to get back onto the platform straight away. And part of that will depend whether we want to get back onto that platform straight away. It will depend on whether others are praying for us to help us get back on. Sometimes we just don't realise the seriousness of the, the situation people are in and um, we're unaware that they're struggling and are about to fall off that, that, uh, that rope. There's an awful story, I don't know whether you read about it, in the paper this week of the inquest into the death of a, uh, a 44-year-old mother who fell down a disused mine shaft, and I think she fell about 30 feet down. Um, her daughter found her after she was shouting out for help, but um, you know, the police came, the rescue services came. Um, they spent so long arguing about health and safety measures, uh, it took about four hours before somebody actually went down to help her. And um, by the time they got her to hospital, she ended up dying from, I think, a hypothermia-related heart attack. Now, that is, that is tragic, isn't it? But I think we need to be aware that when people are struggling as well and not just be blind to, to those, um, those situations. People also need to cry out for help. Often we don't know when somebody is struggling because they haven't admitted their problem, they haven't asked for help. And to call out to God is to, you know, to swallow our pride, to allow him to, to use others to help us, you know, where, where we need help. We want to be rescued, though. He will keep us safe. He'll make sure that we are not harmed. 
Well, having reassured his readers that they are safe and secure in their relationship with God, you might think John would just uh, finish off this letter with a nice little um, grace and peace be with you. But what does he do? Have a look at the end of the letter. He finishes by saying, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You think, well, where did that come from? (laughs) Um, Jeff and I were chatting about it in the car the other day on the way to Oxford, and he said it. Jeff was saying it was a bit like getting a Christmas card, saying, um, you know, wishing you God's peace this Christmas. P.S. Keep yourself from idols. Is it a strange throwaway line, one of those things you just blurt out without thinking about it? What is it? Does it have anything to do with the rest of this letter? Well, I think it does if we look at it. Well, you know, what are the idols, first of all? I mean, we could go to the Ten Commandments and uh, there'll be some familiar teaching there. But, um, you know, let's stay in the, the New Testament because the New Testament has a lot to teach us about this. If, if we just flick briefly to Ephesians chapter 5, page 1176. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. If we go back to to 1 John, if we look at chapter 2 of 1 John, it's expressed in another way. It says, um, verse 15 of chapter 2, 1 John, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Idolatry here, it's immorality, it's impurity, it's greed. It's basically finding satisfaction in someone or something other than God whether it's sexual satisfaction in the case of immorality, whether it's satisfaction of material things in the case of greed. But how does that link in with the rest of the letter? Well, the verse before that talks about um, knowing Jesus, who is the true God, who is eternal life. And these other things which we can find satisfaction in are, at the end of the day, false gods. There is only one true God, and there are many false gods. And they are things that we can worship, that we can value more than the one true God. And that is another way of of sin, looking at sin really, is valuing these other things and people more than God. And we're told the punishment for that is death, spiritual death, rather than life. And how do we know, though, that Jesus is, is the one true God? Well, it says in verse 20, we know that he has come and he's given us understanding. If you were to go back to the beginning of the letter, you remember it started with John saying, um, I'm an eyewitness. I've seen him. I've heard him. I've touched the Son of God. I'm giving you my eyewitness report. Believe in him. So keep yourselves from idols. It's not just another command that you need to, to keep. It's saying, if you trust that God is real, if you trust that he delights in doing you good, then obeying his commands won't be a burden. You'll want to love God. You'll want to abide in God. You'll want to enjoy him. 
And you'll find far greater satisfaction in him than anything or anybody else. God's love for us and our love for him is what this letter is really all about. And what John is saying here right at the end of the letter is don't let anything come between you and God. Don't let anyone or anything destroy that special relationship that you have. How do we do that? How do we keep ourselves from idols? Well, by recognising that in that relationship with God, we have all that we can possibly need, all we can imagine. And anything that tries to compete with that is just going to be woefully inadequate. Now, many of us, I'm sure, at some stages in our lives have tried those competing gods and realised that they don't satisfy. That we need to be constantly on our guard for ourselves, And we need to be on our guard for each other. That we're not enticed away from the one true God. As we prayed earlier on the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. Our God has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so we can be sure that he hears us, that he protects us. So guard yourselves against idols.